Okay, so thank you for coming along uh, to the seminar. Um, I've, uh, uh, I've been married to Annie for 33 years, and at heart, I, uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, I lead the t- I've led the team at Hope for the last 12 and a half years. I was previously based in uh, King's Community Church in Hedge End on staff uh, as a pastoral elder for uh, 11 or so years. Um, I want to recommend just a couple of books uh, before we start. Um, So first of all, I just want to give a shout out for John's book as well. Now, uh, I've had the privilege of working alongside John on team uh, for uh, 10 plus years. And all I just want to say is he's the real deal. And so this really is the real deal. And so I really encourage you to read it. I've not had the opportunity to read it all, but I will have heard pretty much everything that John has said in this book And I want to say that he lives it out. So that's the first thing. Second book, um, just to encourage you, if you've not read this book, I'd encourage you to read it. Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. If you've not read it, you ought to read it. It really conveys Christ's heart for people. And uh, that should be, uh, uh, we are to have the heart of Christ for people. We're under shepherds. He's the great shepherd. Um, in terms of uh, a book that is, uh, has helped me coming out of the last couple of difficult years, it's called The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership by Tom Nelson. I think it speaks into some of the challenges we've had. So if you are a, have a pastoral role in a church, I think this is a great book to read. And I, I'm going to uh, shamelessly just uh, publish, uh, not publish, it was published, I'm going to mention my own book. I wrote this uh, a few years ago, it's been published, it's still available, and uh, it, it really is, but it's called Through, and it's really talking, facing up to the issue of death, but it's very devotional, uh, taking you through uh, Jesus Christ from the cross, and why uh, Jesus, and how Jesus has overcome death, and the fear of death. So, a few books uh, to recommend to you. So, uh, I, uh, there's a, an image going to come up in a, a second of a, uh, a ceramic dish. Now, I was in the kitchen, I was doing, uh, Annie had asked me to uh, uh, take something out of the oven. I take a ceramic dish out of the oven, um, the plate is boiling hot, so I've got oven gloves. As I take it out of the oven, it just shatters uh, in my hands. Why does it shatter? It shatters because there are cracks all over it and in the heat of the oven what happens is those cracks eventually it breaks the truth is everything under pressure eventually breaks if there are cracks under the surface including people and over the last few years we have all been under huge stress I've never known uh, a season like it now post COVID, we're in the midst of uh, an economic uh, meltdown. We're seeing increasing evidence of hurting people all around us, uh, particularly in the realm of mental health, uh, anxiety, fear. And the result of the last few years is that many people's physical and spiritual health has been impacted, and uh, the pressure has damaged uh, relationships by widening hairline cracks that have been there for years. Once thriving churches have struggled with relational tensions. Shocking number of church leaders have uh, disappeared, fallen by the wayside. P- 
People are more needy and broken than we realize. Uh, this last week, let me just give you an insight into this last week. On Saturday, I have a phone call from a team member. Uh, it's a phone call telling me that someone who is on the fringe of the church, uh, they're concerned uh, that they've uh, attempted suicide and have called emergency services. The person's now in hospital. They're now out of hospital. On uh, uh, Monday morning of this week, I, have a, I see a text message from someone dearly loved in the church, their wife who's been ill for the last four years with a serious illness, has passed away and gone to be with the Lord. Uh, I, yesterday, I am watching my WhatsApp messages because my sister, my 57-year-old sister, is in the midst of chemotherapy. Last night, I get home and uh, I, it's the, the one session I wasn't at. I was watching Guy online last night. I thought he was excellent. But just, as, just before Guy gets up to speak, I get a phone call from someone, uh, from a couple whose uh, the wife has been working and has had has a meltdown, literally a breakdown in work, emotionally broken, and they're asking, you know, what's my advice? What, what should they do? All around us. That's just uh, in... A week. It's a huge challenge. But I want to say to you, it's a gospel opportunity. So how do we care for the increasing number of broken and hurting people? I'm going to tell you a story I heard many, many years ago. If you've heard it, my apologies. So David McNee, who was an ex-commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, told the story, and it's about a police exam. And a police exam question. And the question was this. You're on patrol when an explosion occurs on the next street. As you arrive, you note that a crowd of people are running away from the scene, several of whom are screaming. Upon further investigation, you find a large hole with an overturned van uh, lying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You know He's an unlicensed driver and his wife is the wife of your inspector. A motorist stops to offer assistance and you recognise him as being wanted in connection with a recent armed robbery. Suddenly, someone runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby. The shock of the explosion has brought on labour. Before you can respond, you hear someone crying for help having been thrown into an adjacent canal by the explosion. She's shouting she can't swim. Describe what you would do. Apparently, one bright young officer came up with a model answer, take off uniform and mingle with crowds. <laughs> so what does happen when the phone rings at 8 o'clock and we're told that a 34-year-old young woman has been killed in a car accident in the church? What do we do when a 41-year-old mother of three is told that she has three months to live? How do we handle a situation when... A close friend's wife has been having a long-term affair. Or a couple turn up on our doorstep distraught at 10 o'clock at night with their two children in pyjamas, wanting shelter and somewhere to live. Or parents of a 20-year-old are sitting on your sofa weeping because their child has told them they're same-sex attracted. Unfortunately, taking off the uniform isn't an option. Those are all situations at some point over the years that I've had to face. And sadly, there's rarely a textbook answer 
I've never come across a comprehensive, meaningful training to help me handle the situations that I've uh, had to face. Pretty much all I've learned has been learned at the coalface, outworking biblical truth in the heart of pastoral situations. And if I knew 35 years ago what I uh, know now, I would have saved myself a lot of unnecessary mistakes and a lot of pain on my part and on the people that I was trying to help. I am no expert. All of you will have been in situations like that, probably at some point, and if not, you will be facing situations like that. And you have some experience of your own. But today I want to just uh, try and help us and give us some pointers. I'm convinced that if, uh, if we need anything in this season, we need more shepherds for the many wounded and lost sheep that are going to come our way. Guy brought a prophetic word uh, uh, a little while ago about a, a, another tsunami coming of economic difficulty, hardship post-COVID. And that's now on us. And we're going to see increasingly uh, broken people come looking for help. And they're going to be looking to us to provide that. God's solution has always been to create people who are just like his son. And that's why I recommend the book Gentle and Lowly, because Jesus is our role model. He is the great shepherd of the sheep, and we are his under-shepherds. And uh, he cared for those people his father put in front of him, strengthening the weak, healing the sick, binding up the injured, bringing back the strays, and searching for the lost. Here are some keys. They're not exhaustive. This is, I'm not giving you a, a list, a tick box list of things you go, well, that's what I do when I get in that situation because every situation is different because people are different and uh, the circumstances are different. But here are some things that uh, I think there are some keys for us to help us bear in mind when we are looking to help wounded people. And so there are 10 of them. Uh, it's not an exhaustive list, there's probably many more, and uh, I'm going to have to whiz through most of it, and hopefully at the end there may be a, an opportunity for some questions, if you've got questions. Uh, what I would say, uh, if you are planning to use what I tell you, uh, uh, talk about today, as, uh, as a means for dealing with situations you're facing, uh, I'd like you to sign a little disclosure, because uh, my PI probably isn't going to cover you because I'm not an expert, but I, I do want to point you uh, uh, and talk about some of the things that I believe will help us as we look to help uh, needy and broken people. The first thing I want to say to you is this. The first thing we need to remember, I think this is crucial, we need to know and remember that we are all broken. Zach Eswine in his book, Sent in Jesus, said this. We the injured are everywhere. This fact should not have surprised me. After all, Jesus had clearly revealed our injured world in the Gospels. He regularly walked his disciples down roads filled with sights, sounds and smells of persons broken by bodily or soulish sickness and hardships. That is true. There are broken people everywhere. I remember years ago, really good friends of mine, we were on holiday with them. And uh, 
this couple were, uh, they were talking to us, they were telling us, it's not uh, one of our churches, but they were telling us that they were going to be helping on the marriage course. And uh, all Annie and I could see as we were spending time with them on holiday was they didn't need to be helping on the marriage course, they need to be on it. Because actually their marriage was in, it was in trouble. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see their own brokenness in their own relationship. That's a real problem for us if we don't realize that we're carrying wounds and we've been damaged. Sin has left its mark on all of us. None of us are the finished article. The older Paul got, the more he realized his own friendship. By the end of his life, he's saying, I am the worst of sinners. Paul boasted in his weaknesses because he knew in his weaknesses that God's power, God would show up with his power. And so acknowledging and understanding our frailties and weaknesses is a key starting point for us. It's what we see through the Bible in Heroes of the Faith. They realize their brokenness. We need to understand ourselves. To healthily be able to self-reflect is a key for each one of us. It keeps us from being judgmental and harsh. And if we're not aware of our weaknesses, caring for others can easily become about meeting our needs, not their needs, and need to be needed. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen that many times. People who, they have a need to be needed and so they're helping others and actually uh, they, they haven't understood that they're their own frailties and, and so that impacts what happens and the impact of their help with others. You see, because if people become dependent on us at some point, we are going to let them down. And so we need to understand it's not about us. This is what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse three. It's a verse that Guy, I remember Guy saying to me years ago, if every leader read this verse and reminded themselves of this verse every day, our churches would be different. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. We need a daily dose of gospel humility as we face people in front of us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, a verse that I use regularly, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we have ourselves have received from God. So here's the first principle. We're all broken. And if we know we're broken, we receive help from God. We're better able to help others. First key principle. Second one is, is really obvious. These are really obvious, okay? But we need to remind ourselves of them. The second one is we need to point people to Jesus. I remember uh, walking into, as a young pastor, me and Annie went to a hospital, one of our uh, someone who'd been in one of our small groups, a couple that we'd been there, seen them get together, get married, have a family. She's in hospital, she's ill. We turn up at the bedside. 
the curtains around the bed, the registrar just walks out as we walk in. And as he has just told her, she's got liver cancer, she's got three months to live. I just remember, what, what, do, I, what do I do? What's my responsibility in this moment? I, everything within me just wants to go, come on, let's just pray for God to work a miracle. First thing I need to do, I need to point her to Jesus. I need to remind her of what she believes and her faith. And actually, that whatever happens, she is safe and secure in his hands. We go to, we pray our best prayers, but first and foremost, we point people to Jesus. You see, as we do that, it reminds us of the truth that only Jesus can fix them. We can't fix them. We fix no one. We simply point them to the good shepherd. And you know, wounded and damaged people, they know when we're trying to fix them. It's true. I was with, uh, talking to someone the other day, this person has more baggage than Terminal 5 at Heathrow. <laughs> and this person was talking to someone and uh, the person that, who was talking to them uh, said after, it was a great conversation, this person said afterwards, they were trying to fix me. Oh, that's interesting. It's not about us. It's not about the answers we give. It's actually, we're always pointing people to Jesus. When we point people to Jesus, we never pressurize them. They've got to go of their own accord. Sometimes you want to drag them, come on, you need to, you're... They've got to go of their own accord. And here's a good principle for us to remember when we're dealing with people, is when we're dealing with them, how we deal with them often is to do with the trajectory that they're going on. So when people are coming into the church and they're on the fringe of the church and they're coming closer and they're moving towards Jesus, we deal with them in a particular way. When someone is at the core of the church but going the other way and going away, we deal with it in a, in a different way. Do you understand that? So one of the questions we need to ask is, what's the trajectory? And the trajectory is never straightforward. Sometimes people, as they're walking towards Jesus, they take five steps forward. The next week, it's... The week after, it's two forward. The week after, it's one back. What's the overall trajectory that someone... Is someone going in the right direction? That helps us in terms of how we handle the situation in front of us. And the danger is, I remember hearing Terry say years ago when people were saying, Terry, uh, do, I, do I show people in this situation grace or righteousness? And Terry went, no, 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 no. I, remember, I clearly remember saying, it's never grace or righteousness. It's always grace and righteousness come together. And that's why Paul says in Titus, uh, it talks about, for the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So we point people to Jesus. The third thing is this. We need to trust the sovereignty of God. It's obvious. John's been talking about it this morning. I, I remember a, a guy years ago who was struggling with drug addiction, had a serious drug addiction, young family, um, 
Uh, I quickly tell the story. So he phones me and he says, Steve, can you help me? Please help me because I, I think the dealers are going to come round and uh, I'm afraid of what they're going to do. Uh, the, the, they could do something with the kids and you know, I'm, I owe them money. Please, can you help me? And this was in the early days. I'm not sure I would do the same now. Uh, so I say, okay, come on, let's meet up. So we meet up and he says, I say, how much do you owe them? He says, uh, I, I owe them about uh, 100 quid. And I'm like, he said, can you, can, you, can you give me the money? And I'm like, now I'd go, I'd probably say no now, actually. But I, I said in the time, I'm like, I'm torn, I'm like, I love the guy, I want to try him. So I go, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to help you. So we drive down to Western Shore in Southampton, and uh, I give him the money, and he gets out the car, and we're in the car, but it's an empty car park. And uh, he gets out the car, and he says, I'm just going to go sort it out, and I'll, I'll come back and pay them. Now... As he walks out the car, I have this moment where I'm going, oh, is he, is he actually going to pay them or is he going to buy more drugs? <laughs> and, and actually, my car is on CCTV. <laughs> Am I going to be on Crime Watch at some point? Does anyone know this guy? I, you know, I, and this guy, so uh, we try to help him. We encourage him to do Freedom in Christ, which is a great course, uh, but it doesn't. You know, the course doesn't solve him, sort him. He's not sorted by course. But we just have to keep trusting the software. And there's a moment, uh, months and months later, of this guy making mistakes, slipping, falling back. He has a breakthrough. I saw him the other day at a, at a funeral that I was doing. And uh, he's doing well and loving God, and you just go, oh God, that, you just, sometimes we just have to trust, as John said, the word of God to do its work in people's lives. We sow the word, and we sometimes have to lead them to God. There are moments where, uh, like Jesus which, with the rich young ruler, he lets him walk away. So it says Jesus loved him, and he lets him go. Now, we don't know the end of that story, but Jesus just trusts him to the sovereignty of his father. He knows that Jesus probably knows actually what's going to happen in the moment, but he's, he's happy to let him go. Sometimes we need to be prepared to let people go and trust them to the sovereignty of God. You know, God uh, is doing, I remember hearing this, God is doing more behind our backs than he is in front of our faces. So here's the question. If God is at work and we can't see it, what's God doing that we can join in with? You see, we live in an instant world and we want instant restoration for people. And if you read Psalm 126, it, it, it talks about the people of God are coming broken out of Babylon. They're coming back tearful. And, um, uh, and uh, they, they, they want restoration. And for some of them, it's, they, they want restoration. And it's going to be like streams in the desert. It's the desert. The, the rain comes straight away and there's an immediate response. Sometimes it happens like that. When it does, hallelujah. Other times it's like seed that you sow that just takes time and it works and then in due season the word of God works its way out and there's a harvest of righteousness. Sometimes, well, we just, we just do need to trust the word of God and the sovereignty of God to work stuff out. So the fourth thing is this. We need to know the word John talked about it this morning. Uh, it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly. 
If we are soaking in the word of God day in, day out, what's going to, when we're under pressure and we're in difficult situations, what's going to come out is what we've soaked in. It's like a sponge. If we, sponges that soak in the truths of God, the principles of God, what comes out when we're under pressure and we're in those moments is, um, is the word of God, the principles of God. I often use this phrase that, uh, about going back to first principles. And so I can honestly tell you, as I got that phone call, uh, that message on Monday morning, and a dear friend of mine uh, has passed away. Uh, the husband is a good friend of mine. Love them dearly. And I'm thinking, I'm honestly thinking, wow, it's my day off. And I'm thinking, I really ought to go around and see them. And everything within me, you know, honestly, after all these years, I'm still thinking, I'm not looking forward to it. Why am I not looking forward? I'm not looking forward to it, not because I don't love them and not because I don't care for them, but I know this is, this is a start. It's been a long road already. It's been a number of years we've been walking with them. But I know what's coming. Uh, I know I'm going to walk into a situation. I don't know how they're going to be. I don't know what questions I'm going to be asked. I don't know what place they're going to be. I'm going in. I feel vulnerable. I don't go in with a tick list of things that I'm going to say to them. I'm going in thinking, God, please be with me. And as I go in, do you know what I'm relying on? I'm relying on the word of God that dwells in me richly. I'm trusting that in every moment, the principles of the word of God that I've allowed to soak into my life over the years, whatever I'm facing, God's enough. And God's gonna help. I'm gonna help them and it's gonna help them through me. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit. We need a good grasp of biblical principles. Context is everything. So when we're going in the, the, uh, and you're dealing with a difficult situation, the, a good question to ask is, what's the key issue here? What's the key outcome we're looking for? Is this an issue of repentance or is this an issue of forgiveness? I've, uh, I've, I, there are moments, I remember a moment in the midst of COVID, just a bust up on social media over the whole issue of Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was just, honestly, I, I felt I lost two weeks of my life at that moment trying to understand things. I was trying to grapple with things myself and then trying to sit and help and bring reconciliation. The key thing there was, it was about reconciliation. And I, 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 have, uh, I have people saying to me, you need to, this is a church discipline issue. You need to, that's a church discipline. They're quoting at me, Matthew A, Matthew. And they're saying, this is a Matthew uh, uh, issue where you, you need to, Take it to the church. And, and I'm like, no, no, this is, this is a Philippians 4 issue. This is Yodin and Syntyche fallen out. And uh, Paul says uh, to Clement, and as he says, help these women who've worked with me. Get alongside. This is not a church discipline. This is about bringing reconciliation. What's the key goal? The key goal is reconcil reconciliation. Reconciliation is the goal of the gospel. 
So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to bring reconciliation. I'm trying to win them back. I'm trying to say to them, look, this is where I sit on this issue. Can you agree with me? And then I'm saying to the other one, uh, this, is the, this is how I see this. This is where I sit. Can you agree with me? And as I'm putting my answer on them, and I'm saying, if you can agree with me, then you can agree with each other. And we can agree to differ on some things, but we can love one another in the gospel. Sometimes we need to strengthen tired hands and weak knees. Sometimes that's what, we're, that, that's what we need to do. This is what needs to happen. This, this person is weary. Last night, that phone call last night, this person just wants to, some reassurance that the decision that they'd actually already decided that they were going to make was the right one. Should I go into work today? They've just spent, they've been sick in the morning, they've been anxious, they get to work, they're spending an hour crying and they're thinking, do I need to get up and, and go to work tomorrow? And I'm saying, you need to go and see a doctor. That's my advice to you. That's why I would suggest you. It's your decision, but my advice would be go and see a doctor. You probably need some space to think about what you're going to do. They, that's what they, they just needed, some reassurance. Other times we need to exhort and warn and sometimes it's about, actually people need a firm word. So uh, 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 you read in Psalm, uh, Psalm 23, the rod and the staff uh, that Mark was talking about the other day, um, they, they have very different purposes. Sometimes the rod is corrective, it's nudging people in the right direction, come on, right direction. And so we bring the word of God to bring people in the right direction. We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Actually, it's not just the person in front of you we're looking to do, we're looking to deal with the context of the church. And there have been moments when other people in the church see how we deal with stuff and it reassures them. I've had people come up to, uh, and John I know has had it as well, come up and say to us, thank you for dealing with that. I feel secure in this church. I feel cared and loved by the way you dealt with that situation. Fifth thing, again, fairly obvious, be filled with the Spirit. We need to be people who are daily filled with the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to come and illuminate and help us deal with stuff that we face. So there almost, I remember a guy who, um, uh, he was on the, uh, uh, their family were coming to our preschool at the time. The daughter was coming to our preschool in the, the church in Hedge End. And we heard that the husband had just been diagnosed with a brain tumour. The family are devastated. And... Uh, I'm, we're praying for them. The, the preschool staff are praying for them. But I'm, praying for, I'm praying for them because I'm one of the directors of the preschool. So I'm involved. I'm on staff for the church. And so I'm praying for the husband. I'm praying for Tony. And um, I just felt God nudge me that I needed to write to him. Like, oh no, I actually don't really want to do that, actually. I feel a bit awkward. What am I going to say? I just felt I needed to do it. So I, I wrote to him and... Uh, somehow got the letter to him. Now, I'm like, for weeks, nothing happened. So I'm like feeling, oh, wow, what did I, I knew I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> you know, uh, having this moment of self-doubt, should I have done it, shouldn't I have done it? Um, 
but I just want to reach out to him and let him know that God loves him. And then my wife is talking to his wife and his wife says to Annie, she says, do you know that letter Steve wrote to Tony? He's been carrying with him every day. And you go, oh, wow. I had the privilege of then getting meeting up with him, spending time with him, talking with him, encouraging him. He does Alpha, he gets saved and, and then subsequently died of a brain tumour. I believe that I'll see him in glory one day. As a spirit nudge. How do we deal with broken people? Sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to nudge us. There are moments when we're in meetings and someone comes to mind. So we just say, I need to go and pray with that person. We need to follow people who follow Holy Spirit nudges. The sixth thing is this. We need to create a culture of hope. I think culture is... You know, there's so much about the culture that we need to create in our churches. One of the things that's a big issue for me is is creating the right culture, a culture of grace in our churches. Dallas, Dallas Willard says this, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive and dissatisfied, yet such Christians are everywhere. We need to create a culture that is different in our churches. We need to help our people. So it's not just about the lead. The lead elder and the elders, they create a culture in the church, but it's something that we all do. So we will all have been in contexts where uh, we, uh, many of our churches will have welcome teams. The responsibility for welcoming people isn't the welcome team's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. They're just helping us set the tone. So we all have a responsibility to set a culture of hope. And and it starts with having a right view of God. It's it's not something that floats around in the air. It's embedded in people. Culture's embedded in people. And it's so sad when needy people are put off from God by spending time and coming into church and they leave disappointed. We need to be welcoming. We need to... Tell stories that raise faith and hope. We need to keep things simple. We need to be honest with people. We don't make promises that we can't keep. And if we get it wrong, we apologise. I don't get it right. So when I've, I've made moments, pastorally, I've made mistakes in moments, and I've had to go back and say, I just want to say, you know, that wasn't right. I, I, I'm sorry about that. I remember this, this lady who's just died, there was a moment when we didn't realise how serious, serious it was. And uh, I remember being with them as a couple and I, and I just said, come on, you, you need to, you know, buck your ideas up. It was another gem from the pastor's heart, you know. And, and I felt in the moments, right, but afterwards I went away and I went, I'm actually, that's not right. And I went back and I said to the husband, I said, I just want to say I'm sorry. I, 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 think I, I don't think I got that right. Sometimes we get it wrong and we need to be prepared to admit when we get it wrong. Don't make promises that you can't keep. Be prepared to face the facts. I love that bit in Romans 4 where it talks about Abraham. It says, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, yet without weakening in his faith, he carried on believing God for the promise. We live in the tension and the now and the not yet. 
And so what we don't do is create unrealistic... We, we say, actually, we, we, we're praying for a miracle, but we know ultimately that we're going to go and be with the Lord. And, and actually, you know, even Lazarus, when he's raised from the dead, dies again. And so irrespective of what God does in this situation, we're praying for a miracle, but even if not, we know where we're going to go. We need to know where we're gonna point people. And so as a church, we, have, we run lots of things. We do Freedom in Christ. We're doing something called Kintsugi Hope. We're about to start something called Restored Lives, which is about uh, lives that are damaged by divorce and uh, marriage breakdown. Um, so we have lots of things, but courses don't, they're just tools, okay? Ultimately, it's about pointing them to Jesus. And there is no one fixed solution for people. Every person is different. And so we go into it and we're looking to God. That's why we, we need the word of God to dwell us. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to lead us because it's the person in front of us. Sometimes we, need, we mustn't be afraid of pointing people to professional help. I, I, I hear people, pastorally sometimes, they, they, it's almost like they, they, that going for counselling is somehow that's, we shouldn't encourage people to do that. I want to say, I want to say, personally, I think that's utter nonsense. And so last night, I'm on the phone, I'm saying, actually, they need to go and see a GP. And if they need medication, that's okay. I don't think medication isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. But if that's what the, the GP says, then, then that's okay for a season. Because there are so many people who are feeling, there are people in our churches who feel guilt, they're wounded and they're guilty because they're taking medication and they won't talk about it. You don't think it's true? And I'm not sure you know your sheep. Because <laughs> it is. The seventh thing is this, we need to listen out for heart cries. When you're with people and people are talking with you, you we need to have ears attuned for heart cries. You know, listening skills are a dying art. That's why when James says in James 1.19, be quick to listen, slow to speak. <laughs> it needs to be quick to listen. We need to listen out for heart cries. And we, when we're with people, we need to be present in the moment. We need to be genuinely listening to them. So uh, one of my great weaknesses is that I'm thinking of what I'm going to say next. Have you ever done that? Someone's talking to me and I'm thinking, oh, I want to say this. And I'm just going to wait for a gap in the conversation and then I'm going to... Because what's happening there is two things. One is I'm not really listening to them. And the second thing is I'm, trying, I'm thinking I can fix them with what I'm going to say. Actually, sometimes people, people, the benefit of being heard is so therapeutic. People want to be heard. We need to hear what people are saying to us. So uh, I was reading um, John 4 the other day about the, the, uh, Jesus with the woman at the well. The disciples have left Jesus tired and thirsty. So Jesus is tired, he's thirsty, he's at a well, they've gone to a village and on they come back, they come back and they, they are astonished to see what's happening in front of them. And I read this quote, it says this, Upon their return, the disciples are astonished to see what's happening. And the questions they want to ask are bad ones. 
but at least they have enough sense not to say anything. And this, then this person then goes on to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer makes the point that the first and in many ways the most important ministry we offer to others is the ministry of holding our tongues. It must, and then he says this, it must be the decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. <laughs> I love that. So we need to listen. Don't plan what you're going to say next. Ref I mean, you, you've all heard this. Reflect back what you've heard. Have you just said this? Do you know what? When I'm talking to people, before I say something, I will often say to them, I, I invite their permission. Do you really want to know what I think? I ask for their permission before I speak into a situation. If you don't know what it feels like, don't say you do. People know it's not true. It winds them up. I was with someone not so long ago and, and I was going to say, oh, I know just what that feels like. And I, I stopped myself and I said, I just want you to know I have no idea of the pain of that, what that feels like. I don't understand it. And the person said, thank you so much. Immediately said, thank you so much for saying that. I so appreciate you being honest about it. If I'd said the opposite, they would have known it's not true. We, sometimes we say things because we want to sort of win them to what we're going to, to receive in help from us. We need emotional, a measure of emotional intelligence. The ability to read the person in front of us, what's going on in their head and heart. That's a spirit thing. We need to, Holy Spirit to help us to read, read the situation that we're facing in the church. The, 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 guys, some of the guys from uh, Hope Church that have been leading in worship, helping leading the worship, uh, one of the things I, I talk to them about is, is learning to read the room in the worship, what's, what's happening in the room. And they, I mean, they, haven't they done great? They've been great, haven't they? Well, all of them. I just think I'm so proud. But, you know, it's about reading the room, what's happening in the room. Don't just get lost in wonder, love and praise. Our responsibility is to help people in front of us. Listen out for heart cries. The, the eighth thing is this, is loving those in front of us. Dale, uh, Dane Ortland says this. He's uh, it, talking in line with Jesus' heart. He says, he says that our pity and compassion are drawn out in corresponding, corresponding intensity to the degree to which we love the one in view. Pity and compassion being drawn out, are drawn out in corresponding intensity with how much we love the person in front of us. The truth is, sometimes we don't love the people in front of us enough, and so we are less than compassionate and kind. We need to show, demonstrate to them that we care in the way that we treat them. It's not about us, it's about them. God expects us to care as much for the unlovely as the lovely. We all see people in front of us with filters. We need to learn to not see people with filters. We need God's help to do that. So when Jesus, in John chapter 9, we were hearing the story uh, in one of the preachers earlier 
this week, uh, uh, there's a man born blind and the disciples say, well, who caused it? Who's, up, who's to blame here? Their filter is there must be, someone must be at, at fault here. What, what's, Jesus doesn't have those sort of things. He says, no, this is for the glory of God. We need God to help us not have filters. What are our filters? We need to have a genuine love for those in front of us, being caring, empathetic, encouraging, firm, practical, always wanting the best for them. That's our goal, the best for them. We need to make sure we don't show favoritism to certain people, certain people we, we work with, but others we don't. We need to learn to keep godly boundaries as we love the people in front of us. We need to, our main goal is protecting them and helping them and wanting them to encounter Jesus. The ninth thing is this, we need to walk alongside people. We need to walk alongside needy people. So I think of two people in the church, one of my fellow elders, his wife Fran, she is brilliant with walking with people for the long term. She's just brilliant at it. She walks with people who have major challenges, issues, and she walks with them for month after month after month after month. She is absolutely outstanding at it. My wife Annie, that isn't her gift. My, my wife Annie is, is like a butterfly. She, like, she, she sort of flutters over and she lands somewhere and she leaves a deposit of God's grace and then she's, you know, God takes her somewhere. It's a bit like Philip with, being, you know, when he's with the Ethiopian eunuch and suddenly disappears to somewhere. She's like that. She, she lands, but wherever she lands, she leaves a blessing. There's no right and wrong way uh, to be. It's the, it's the gifting God gives you, but we need to be those who are walking with people however we do that. I uh, have a, last year had the privilege, but also as a sad privilege of uh, doing a funeral for a good friend of mine. He was my age. He dropped dead of a heart attack. And uh, it was a really, tri- really tricky funeral. And uh, his wife is a good friend of my wife's. And she, my, so my wife, Annie, has been, just been in touch with her over this last year. And uh, uh, it's quite difficult for me to get involved in it because it's just not appropriate. So my wife does all that, you know. But my heart goes out to her. And I was reading on holiday. We were on holiday and I read this quote and I just felt, it's for her. So I said to her, so the first thing I did, what did I do? The first thing I did is typed out and sent it to her. Now the first thing I did, I went to my wife who knows the situation better than me and I said, what do you think? If I send this, is this going to be appropriate? What do you reckon? She said, I think that's perfect. So I'm like, okay. So I, I send it, and uh, this is the quote I sent. It's going to come up it's by Bonhoeffer. We are so good at giving trite little stuff. This is deep, and I want you to listen to this. There is nothing that can replace the absence of someone dear to us, and one should not even attempt to do so. One must simply hold out and endure it. At first, that sounds very hard. But at the same time, it is also a great comfort. For to the extent the emptiness truly remains unfilled, one remains connected to the other person through it. It is wrong to say that God fills the emptiness. 
God in no way fills it, but much more leaves it precisely unfilled and thus helps us preserve, even in pain, the authentic relationship. Furthermore, the more beautiful and full the remembrances, the more difficult the separation. But gratitude transforms the torment of memory into silent joy. So I sent it, heard nothing. Three days of, oh no, I've, should I, did I, oh, has that landed badly? She is so missing her husband. She loves God. And then I get a message from her. It says, Steve, thank you. And, and basically, it was a difficult, she was processing. She said, actually, she said, the day, the, when I just received that, that day, I'd felt God speaking to me about, uh, about turning grief into joy. And so it's actually a difficult word, but it's been helpful. Now, I want you to hear something there. In that moment, I didn't just rely on my own judgment. We, we are put together in, so in my case, in that situation, it's with my wife. But we are in team together. We need to work in team. We need to talk things through together. We need to, we're not lone rangers. It's not about us. Actually, we're caring for a flock together. And so if you are in a situation and you're, you're, maybe you're, you're thinking, I think this is right, but I'm not sure. Talk to people around you who love God and love the person. Henry Newen says this, when Jesus speaks about shepherding, he does not want to think, us to think about a brave, lonely shepherd who takes an acre, uh, takes an acre of a large flock of obedient sheep. In many ways, he makes clear that the ministry is communal and is a mutual experience. Shepherding, we do it together. We are in this for the long haul. And so sometimes if we miss a moment, we don't need to be over worried about it because actually time is in God's hands. When we're walking alongside people, we must make sure that we have good boundaries because there are some people who will suck the life of God out of us. And so we need to be really careful about setting good boundaries. So if you're going to spend time with people, sometimes you say, well, we're going to... Uh, I'm gonna, I'd like us to spend some, would you like to spend some time together? We pray together. Yeah, great. Well, we'll do it for six weeks and then we'll see how it's going. This is not something we'll do for life. You don't make promises and expectations and then at the end of it say, actually, I think probably this probably season has come to an end. We don't lock ourselves into stuff. But that's part of walking with people and trying to help them because at the end of the day, we want them to move on and it's not about connecting them with us. We walk alongside people. And lastly, and this will be very brief, we pray. Obvious really, isn't it? We pray. We're people who believe that God answers prayer. And so we bring people before a throne of grace that they might receive mercy to help them in their time of need. That's what we do. We bring people before God. We talked, uh, uh, showed you an image at the beginning of a, a, a pot with cracks all over it. Some of you will have heard of kintsugi, which is the Japanese art of a pot that gets broken. And the, uh, what they do is they put it back together, but between that, they put the crack, in the cracks, they put gold. 
And what was broken, they make something beautiful out of the broken. That is what God does with broken and damaged people. That's the process that we're on. We are helping people, by the grace of God, be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Their brokenness actually is part of the miracle of what God has done. This is what it says of Jesus in Isaiah 42. Prophetically speaking of Jesus. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And I'm going to finish with this quote. It's a, I, I thought this was a great quote by someone called F.B. Meyer and it's from uh, a book called Christ in Isaiah. Speaking of this, this verse and he says this. So hearts get broken, too fragile to resist the pressure of the mad rush of selfishness and the tread of unfeeling cruelty. Without a sound they break and thenceforth are cast aside as some useless thing, not worth a thought. The superficial worker ignores these in rude haste. He passes them by to seek an object more commensurate with his powers. Give me, he cries, a severe, a sphere in which I may influence strong, noble and heroic souls. The best, the noblest, is to bend with a divine humility over those whom the world ignores. Exercising a holy ingenuity, a sacred inventiveness, making of bruised reeds, reeds pipes of music. Before it's too late, Get alone with God to learn that the noblest souls are sometimes found within bruised bodies. And the greatest work often emanates from the most inconspicuous sparks. We are about a great work together. God has called us to represent his son and to see broken people restored by the grace of God not out of our own cleverness and actually these coming days there is going to be much more work to do it's only just starting and so we need more and more people to have a shepherd heart have the heart of Christ and so I'm going to draw a close there uh, but if you I mean if there are any questions okay I can see one hand up you shout your question out and I'll speak, I'll repeat everybody what the question is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, when I say something like that, you need to see GP and whatever. I mean, I mean we've probably all waited for appointments for, for those sorts of things. But that, the reality is, it doesn't mean that we do nothing in the intervening period. So I, I think uh, the first thing we do, whenever we, uh, we're talking to people about uh, their, maybe a medical condition or whatever, the first, we do say, go and see your GP. But we're going to pray to God first. <laughs> go and see your GP. We're going to pray right now. We're going to pray for right But go and see your GP. You're struggling with mental health. We're going to pray now because we're going to come to God. But go and see your GP. And I think that's okay to do that. So it's not just, uh, go and see your GP, I'm not going to do anything. See you. It's not like that.
Nice. Steve, you mentioned that it depends on the trajectory yeah. of where the person yeah. goes. They're moving towards Christ. Yeah. People that are moving back yeah. or away. What, what would you do in that situation? So, so Ness's question, I, I talked about trajectory earlier, about the trajectory someone's going in. So... Let me just give you an example. This is, this is, this is not a hugely well thought through example, so I'll, I'll just give you an example. So it's, it's flawed. Uh, but in terms of someone who is coming into the church, say, for example, struggling with same-sex attraction, they're coming in and they're, they're attracted towards Christ. Now, in that moment, our attitude is, should be come as you are. But we know that they don't stay as they are because Christ changes people. Christ changes people from the inside out. Now, as they're coming in towards the church, you are looking and believing God for change and you are trying to help broken people encounter Christ and be put back together and and work through stuff and whatever, whatever that looks like. So the trajectory is that way. So so in terms of um, uh, you... You're accepting that they, they can, they're slipping, they're, they've got baggage, they're whatever, you, they're walking that way. Now, when someone who is, uh, is part of your church and is, you know, for example, your worship leader suddenly says, actually, Steve, I, I've, I'm going to move in with my um, boyfriend, you know, whatever it is, boyfriend, girlfriend, it doesn't have to be same sex, you know. You're like, whoa, <laughs> on a second, that's a different issue. Do you understand the point? I mean, so the trajectory in that way is that way. And so I, I, I want to say I've, I've made that sound very simple. It isn't as simple as that because there are lots of factors that come into play. But, you know, one of the questions I ask myself, what, what's the trajectory here? What's God wanting to, what's, what, you know, actually there's, sometimes it's an issue of repentance. No, you need, this is, this is a very clear biblical issue. It's an issue of repentance here. So I know that helps. Thank you so much. This has been really helpful. You started and ended with a similar statement. We need more shepherds. Yeah. Have you got any advice for how to identify a Christian raise shepherds in our churches? Well, a good a good way to identify a shepherd is uh, do they love sheep? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so it's a silly illustration, but you know, when when I have someone come to to talk to me about. Being a, I'd, I'd really like to lead worship in the church on Sunday. I've just come and I've seen the guy singing. I'd, I'd like to lead worship. The first thing I want to know is, can they sing? Can they hold a note? Because if they can't hold a note, they're not gonna, it's not going to work, is it? So uh, what you're looking for is people who care for people. And it's obvious. You know, if there's someone who's got a shepherd heart, sheep gather to them. So Jesus, what did little children do with Jesus? I'm not going near him, he's a grumpy, miserable bloke. They gathered to him, they flocked around him. Sinners, tax collectors and sinners, gathered to Jesus. So what are you, you look, what are you looking for? You're looking for the evidence. Someone says, I really care for people. And you're like, well, I actually don't see much evidence of that in, the life, in your life. Yeah. What are you looking for? So that it's, it should be obvious or, it, it, or, or it's embryonic. You're not looking for the finished article. And, you, and, and so you're, to look, you're looking to identify and encourage people to do it, care for people. So if everybody in the church has to come to me, oh, Steve's the pastor, you know, go and talk to Steve. Heaven help us, we're in trouble. Because I, 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 I don't have capacity. I don't have, Tim knows I don't have capacity for many things. <laughs> 
That that's the truth. And, and so if it's all about me, so in the stories I was telling earlier, right at the very beginning, the things that happened this week, you know, my general manager is ringing me because he's dealt with it. And he rings me and he says, Steve, this is what happened, this is what I did. And I said, I want to say, well done. You did the right thing. You did exactly what I would have done in that situation. He'd never dealt with a situation like that before. And I just went, but I know he's got a heart for people. And I thought, well done. There's a, a, an issue which I didn't mention earlier in the week. Someone phones up the church office and happens to get catch Annie on the phone and says, oh, there's this elderly uh, couple in the church. Um, uh, they haven't got a care package around them at the moment. And uh, the church need to do something. You know, and, and Annie's first response is, whoa. She says, have you spoken to their daughter? Have you spoken to the family? Um, the church isn't responsible for providing care packages that, that are in another realm. We're not experts in that field. We will care for that, that, that person. We will love them, but that's not our job. I think you need to go back and talk to the, the family first. But we, you know, we, we love them. We're going to keep, keep an eye on them and whatever, but we're not going to do that. And Annie told me, and I just went, oh, well done. What's that? That's a sh she got shepherd's heart. She's, she's wanting, she's not just thinking, oh, we need to draw them to us. It's all about the church. She's wanting the best for them. That's what shepherd does. Shepherd's looking for the best for, so, so uh, in all of it, all that, it's actually, it's about other people. And so I think is, as churches, we're looking to grow to be increasingly shepherd. So I'm going to draw to a close. Can I just pray for us as I close? So, I don't know, why don't you just, if you know that you've got a, you just have a heart for sheep, why don't you just reach out your hands? Lord, we come before you as broken vessels that have been put back together by the grace of God. And we know we're not perfect yet. But Lord, we want to say we love your son. We love your family. We love your people. We love the sheep that you love. And we want to be better shepherds. We want to reflect your son in the way we speak and the way we behave and the way we act. So help us, Holy Spirit, to care for broken and needy people in Jesus' name. Amen.